Welcome to Under the Bleachers. This is a podcast that explores all things sports, all things queer, and the fabulous intersection where queer and sports meet. This podcast is brought to you by Team DC, the nonprofit association of LGBTQ sports and recreation organizations in the Washington, D.C. area. I'm Laura. I'm on the board of Team DC. I've played and loved sports my entire life, and I've played with the DC Furies and Rogue Darts. And I'm Gabe. I'm also on the board of Team DC and I'm a diehard sports fan. I play with many of the Team DC sports member leagues, including the DC GFFL, Stonewall Kickball, Rogue Darts, Kara Bowling, and recently the Washington Scandals Rugby Football Club. And I also do a little drag on the side. We hope you enjoy this week's trip under the bleachers. Welcome everyone, Lauren Gabe here. It's July 27th and you are listening to episode six of Under the Bleachers. As you know, we take turns on this podcast and this week it is Gabe's turn to choose our topics. For our discussion of all things queer, he chose new music from international pop sensation Kylie Minogue. For our conversation on all things sports, we're going to talk about the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. And for the intersection of sports and queer, we will discuss World Rugby's proposed ban on transgender women. After that, we're going to share our interview with Patrick Grady from the Centaur Motorcycle Club. Before we begin, we have a few updates from Team DC. Uh, so Laura and I will be appearing on the Stuff I Never Knew podcast, their episode 83, Hollywood or Bollywood. The episode will appear live on Facebook and YouTube on Tuesday, July 28th at 9 p.m. Laura and I are really stoked about this. 9 p.m. Eastern. Watch us make complete fools of ourselves. Uh, No, actually, I plan on winning. So (laughs) it'll be me against Gabe against a gentleman from India, maybe he said he's calling in from. Yeah, so it'll it'll definitely be interesting. I don't know much about Bollywood. Um, Gabe thinks he probably has an advantage over me because of that. But I I can be pretty sneaky, and I I think I might (laughs) surprise him with my trivia skills. So, yep, check us out uh, this Tuesday, July 28th. Uh, we'll put the link on our Facebook, and we'll send it out online as well. So you all can catch us on Tuesday night on the Stuff I Never Knew Trivia Game Show podcast. Gabe and I will be bringing you new episodes of Under the Bleachers every Monday at underthebleachers.podbean.com, and we're available pretty much anywhere where you listen to podcasts. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Taking those extra few seconds to hit the buttons or type a quick review means a lot to help us get the word out, so please do that. And share us with a friend or two if you know people that would be interested in listening in. With that, here's Gabe with our first topic in this week's Under the Bleachers. My topic in the world of all things queer this week is new music from the Princess of Pop and gay icon Kylie Minogue. Let's face it, 2020 sucks and the world needs new music more than ever. Luckily, Australian diva Kylie Minogue, the real Kylie, has released a new track that will have us dancing through quarantine. Fans of Kylie Minogue have been waiting for new music since 2018 when she released her acclaimed country-inspired album, Golden. Kylie announced in May in a GQ magazine article that she would be releasing a disco-inspired album in the fall. The first track was released on BBC Radio 2 on Thursday and is entitled Say Something. All the lovers will have to wait until November 6th when the rest of her 15th studio album, Disco, is released. So, Laura, are you feeling the disco vibe, and can you get it out of your head? (laughs) Gabe, it is out of my head. (laughs) (laughs) I listened to it a couple of times, and, you know, not surprisingly, because no Kylie Minogue has ever really gotten stuck in my head, it didn't didn't get stuck. I'm not a a Kylie person. I'm going to, off the bat, take issue with you calling Kylie Minogue a gay icon. She is a huge gay icon. Kylie Minogue is an icon for gay men. (laughs) There's a difference. And we need to stop using the phrase gay gay icon. You're erasing women from this. (laughs) So I was reading an article and it said that Kylie knew that she was getting a huge... LGBT fan base uh, when she was driving past a bar. It was a gay bar, and she noticed there was a Kylie night. Uh, and she's like, "What? You know, what, what do you mean there's a Kylie night?" And her manager was like, "Oh yeah, there's a bar that's having a, a Kylie Minogue night." And she's like, "Why aren't we going?" And they went, and instead of oh, the best time she awesome. ever had, she's like, "Oh my god, I went to a Kylie night." And okay. she, this was early '90s when there was not really many, you know, different versions of Kylie. 
Right. Yeah, right. but she so, just showed up right. to the bar and had a great time. That's. I mean, that's pretty cool. And in fairness, I not. I I joke because I fully acknowledge <laughs> that Kylie Minogue is a gay icon. I get it. I also know that like pop music is really big because a lot of gay bars, frankly, these days, the only ones left are the clubs, right? So dance music is the lifeblood of the gay scene. So yeah, I I totally get it. I'm just not you know that this a fan of this kind of music i'm not a dance club music kind of fan i listened to this song and i just thought she sounded like she was whining through the whole thing <laughs> like it's like sort of easily yeah, and annoying like say something say i don't know i yeah we don't need we can we don't need to i mean um horrify listeners with my interpretation of kylie minogue any more than that but not it's just not my bag not i mean it's I, i'm kind of glad she's going back to some of her original pop the, the last album was pretty good but it didn't it was a, it was a country album so a lot of people didn't really take to it as much i mean she's huge across the world huge in europe and australia the u.s she's kind of big but not really i mean she was um she did a concert at the pier at new york world or new york pride in 2018 yeah last time she's been in the u.s basically She's one of those names that I know. She's also older than me. Like, she's like 50-something, I think. 52. Like she, she's been around the block a few times, and she's oh, got, yeah. whatever you said, 15, 16 st- studio albums. I mean, she's not new to this game. But the reality is, like, I was trying to think this morning of any Kylie Minogue songs that I know, and I could really only... What's that? Can't get you out of my head. That's literally the only one I could think of. The locomotion. That is not her song. Uh, but that's that was her first, uh, I guess, redo. Or... Okay, but that is not her song. So no. <laughs> but so yeah, I, I you know, uh, clearly I'm just not a huge Kylie Minogue fan if I can only think of one song off of 16 albums. I mean, I could name more Taylor Swift songs <laughs> than that, and I want to punch Taylor Swift in the throat half the time. So, who also know. released a new album this week? Ah, yes, yes, yes. All of the <laughs> boys are just having the time of their life this week. I mean, we had Taylor Swift. We have Kylie coming in November. There's Lady Gaga who just came out. See, I love Gaga. Huh? So I don't know. maybe, But I think with Gaga, it's like the spectacle of it all. Because I really wasn't that into her music until I watched her HBO special. Um, and when I, I couldn't take my eyes off of her, like she's just such an entertainer. And so then I kind of fell in love with her music because of that. And like with Kesha, I started really paying more attention to her when she was involved in her court case and everything. And I wanted to be supportive of her. And I, then her music kind of became endearing to me and I started to like her music more, but it's in typical like for me typically i'm not a huge pop music fan so there has to be some other hook to get me really into it and kylie doesn't have any of that for me i'll Um, work on this (laughs) but let me ask you so two things that i thought were really weird isn't it a little early to drop your first single off of an album that's not coming out until november it's a teaser people were pre-ordering the album this is too much of a still teaser. listen to albums and this pre-order is, them. This oh, is yeah. like, this is way too much of a teaser. You should be, you should be ashamed of teasing this hard. Um, <laughs> November is too far away. Teaser for a November album should come out maybe the end of September, probably the beginning of October. Like if you're going to tease your fans, tease them for a couple of weeks, not multiple months. That issue. Second, I confess I'm not a disco person. Like I don't, I never followed disco. So I don't, I can't say that I'm super familiar with what the tenets of disco are, but this song didn't sound any different to me than any other sort of pop club music. So did you, do you get whatever this vibe, this disco vibe is? Do you understand what that, what that's about? A little bit more. I think she's going more to her roots because she's had a couple disco songs in the past and did a bunch of covers of other disco music. So she's kind of going back to her original sound, which I kind of like. For me, I was excited this week because um, a new, well, it's not new because Chris Cornell passed away a couple of years ago, but a previously unreleased version of him doing a cover of the song patience by guns and roses was released and it's awesome so that was my music love for the week so we both got a little something out of the world of music 
Yes, and I'm excited. Justin Bieber and Ariana Grande, the song stuck with you. And the video is basically made up of different little videos that people shot of their quarantine life and a lot of like prom shots because a lot of kids didn't have prom. Oh, which I thought was cute. I mean, it sounds sort of cute, but also like awful. Like when we get through, (laughs) I don't want to look back on videos of socially distant proms. Like, let's just put, I don't know. (laughs) I'm not sure how cute it's going to be once we get to the other side of all this. That's so a lot of this content might be something that just helps us get through this trying time. And then we pretend it never happened. (laughs) The the digital history book is just going to be writing itself. Yeah, that's right. I'm happy for you and all pop music lovers everywhere, but (laughs) why don't you tell me something about the world of sports? (laughs) All right. And now for my sports topic, we're going to discuss the 2020 Tokyo Olympics, or more like the 2021 Tokyo Olympics. The Olympic flame was lit on March 12th, and the games at 32nd Olympiad were well on their way to begin last Thursday. But Ms. Rona had different plans. Many countries urged the International Olympic Committee to postpone the games. Just 12 days after the start of the torch relay, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe and the International Olympic Committee agreed to postpone the event for one year. The Olympic Games were awarded to Tokyo back in 2013, and the Japanese Olympic Committee, as well as local government officials, have been working hard to produce a new plan for 2021. The Tokyo Games will employ anywhere from 3,000 to 5,000 staffers, and that added another year of financial stress to the already uh, struggling games. The IOC released a statement last week confirming the new schedule and venues. Basically, the games are going just as planned, but kind of in a streamlined, shorter version. New health measures and safety precautions for athletes and fans have not yet been released, but I'm sure they will be filled with social distance protocols. Hopefully the games can go on next year as there is no plan B. All right, Laura, so what do you think? Do you think the Olympics are going to be able to pull it off and have the games in Tokyo next year? So I hate to be in the prediction game, especially in the current environment because everything is so unknown and so unusual, but I actually think that they will pull it off. Um, I think the Olympics are so unique in the fact that, you know, like they only happen every four years for the summer athletes. Right. And, you know, what's staggered for us as fans, cause we get them every two years, but for the athletes, they're only every four years. So the athletes, a lot, most of the athletes participating are really like planning their two years leading up to the Olympics are all focused, nothing on, but getting ready for the Olympics. So I think it will be possible probably with some advanced planning to have the all of the athletes come in and self-quarantine for a long enough period of time in Tokyo so that there's no risk of people bringing the virus in. And by then, I hope there's enough rapid testing available that they'll be able to get everybody there, test them, make sure everybody's negative, and then just keep them in an Olympic village um, so that it's kind of like the way that the NBA is in the bubble. I mean, the Olympics don't have to go on for that long, so you don't have to keep everybody there that long. Also, most of the, you know, the different sports are played in different venues, so it's not as if you have to have all of these athletes all in the same place. Maybe they will cancel, like, the opening ceremonies or rethink the opening ceremonies so that not everybody's all in the same place, and maybe they won't have tickets, sold maybe they won't have fans or as many fans but i have a feeling they'll be able to um with enough advanced planning get the athletes um segregated enough to to do something that's the interesting thing i was looking at the plan that the uh officials released and they're basically saying yes we're postponing it a year to the date uh from july 23rd uh 2021 and basically saying that all the venues are confirmed, everything's been confirmed, we've invested so much time and money that we need to put this through. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, the games have, you know, in the past couple of years have been kind of struggling with the aftermath of hosting the Olympics. The reality is Tokyo has been investing in preparing for these games for nearly 10 years. Like the amount of money and everything that's gone into it you know, I just think they have to try to salvage something. And it's also because a lot of Olympian, you know, Olympic athletes are talking about these are like amateur athletes who are dedicating their life to a sport to compete in one or two Olympics. You know, (laughs) 
they will do just about anything to not miss their opportunity right oh yeah you know so like i said i think with enough advanced planning you can get them into japan get everybody quarantined tested before you let them around anybody else and they'll be able to figure out a way to do that i think um maybe i'm being overly optimistic uh I do think it would suck to have to go to have the Olympics and not be able to have fans so that like these athletes, um, families and friends and supporters, if they weren't able to go, that would really suck. But, you know, obviously, like anything else, I think the, the athletes would rather compete without fans than not compete at all. So. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it was a very smart postpone the games because right now there was there'd be no way. Uh, to host such an you know event with of that size oh absolutely um, they were not prepared the hope is that with another year with a committee focused on nothing other than figuring out how to pull off the games that they'll be able to do it with a year of planning i mean this summer you know the pe- the virus had only been around a few months there were other priorities on people's minds to getting the virus under control that had nothing to do with the Olympics. There just wasn't enough time to pull it together. But I think with another year, they'll be able to pull something together. And I hope so because I don't want to miss out on the opportunity to see um, like Simone Biles compete one more time. I mean, she's probably only, she's probably going to compete in one more Olympics and that's it. And the whole world will be uh, really denied something amazing if we don't get to see that. Well, yeah, these were supposed to be the really innovative games. Uh, I don't know if you saw the the mock-up for the Olympic medals where the Japanese government asked everyone to donate cell phones and old electronics. And so all the medals were going to be made of recycled scrap metal from electronics. Weird and kind of cool. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I did not know that. That sounds very uh, Japan to me, though. Very. So... Yeah. I'm I'm pretty optimistic. I think they'll be able to come up with a good plan. Hopefully, we'll all be able to enjoy the games next year. Um, yeah, what's your favorite part about the Summer Olympics? Favorite part of the Summer Olympics? I do love the opening ceremonies because I think they're really cool. Yeah. You know, it's a good way for the countries to showcase, you know, their talents and stuff like that. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, the I agree. The opening, the opening ceremonies of all Olympics are super cool. But, like, what, what's your favorite, like, summer sport? Yeah, I think gymnastics is still my favorite, even with all the, like, changes and new stuff. I mean, Rugby Sevens is in the Summer Olympics now, so that clearly is, like, up to the top of my list. Um, But, you know, good old-fashioned gymnastics, which I only watch once every four years, it's, like, the highlight still for me. Yes. Well, you know that uh, this Olympics, we're supposed to have five new Olympic sports that are supposed to debut. Yeah, climbing was one of them, I think. Skateboarding, surfing, climbing, sports, uh, karate, and baseball and softball are back. Yeah, I was going to say, I was really mad when they got rid of softball. Um, because you never really get to watch <laughs> softball, like, other than the Olympics. Um, yeah, no, Gabe, I, I, I hear everything you're saying about the Olympics. I think we're all worried that we're not going to get the Olympics in Tokyo, but I say we remain optimistic. If anybody in the world can be creative enough to solve a problem, it's probably the Japanese. So I'm saying, yes, we're going to have the Olympics in 2021. I'm saying yes to surfing off the coast of Tokyo and (laughs) Uh, I'm saying yes to Simone Biles putting in yet another uh, show for the world about what strong women in sports can can do. So what do we got going on at the intersection of sports and queer this week? For this week's topic at the intersection of sports and queer, we'll be discussing the potential ban of transgender women by World Rugby, the world governing body for the sport of rugby union. Leaked documents produced by World Rugby Transgender Workgroup revealed proposed changes to the rules governing the sport. Currently, World Rugby follows the International Olympic Committee rules stating that a transgender woman must suppress their testosterone levels for 12 months before competing. The working group conducted a review in February and reported that there is a 20 to 30% greater risk of injury when a female player is tackled by someone who has gone through male puberty. Many international gay rugby teams were quick to defend and support transgender ruggers. The Chicago Women's Rugby Club stated, 
World Rugby's proposed ban on trans women is a transphobic insult to a sport grounded in inclusion and pushing one's limits. Team DC member club, the DC Revolution states, the revolution stands with our transgender sisters and all members of the transgender community. Rugby is a sport that should be enjoyed by all people, regardless of gender identity. The international debate is just starting. If this rule is passed, this would be the first international sports federation to prohibit transgender women from competing. All right, Laura, any thoughts on what is going on in the rugby world right now? Yeah, I mean, you know, as a rugby player and a rugby fan, this is super disappointing, right? Um, I, the working group, quote unquote, that is working on this for um, World Rugby includes a number of doctors, some of whom are known to have repeatedly made anti-trans statements. So this is not like an, a proper objective group of people to be working on this issue. Also, the science that they say that they're relying on, my understanding from what I've read is basically one study that has not yet been peer reviewed, which is, that's not valid science, right? And yeah, that's the tough I, thing. Right. And I've read, and over the last couple of years, there's been a number of um, doctors who have made statements and given expert opinions that say the opposite, that say that there is absolutely no scientific basis to conclude that a, an individual that goes through male puberty is, um, has an inherent um, advantage over someone else in athletics if they do if the, absent a high level of testosterone so this is you know it's bullshit like it's based on what appears to be junk science it's coming from a working group that's made up of people who are not who are already shown to have been biased on these issues um, so coming from any organization this would be hugely disappointing Coming from rugby, it's it's just oh so much worse. Um, one because it's personal to me because I love rugby, but two because rugby is unlike almost any other sport, a sport that is designed to be played by people of all different body types. I mean, in the same on the same pitch at any given time you're going to have a scrum half who could potentially be tackled by a prop. And in just ordinary, yes. ordinary conditions, a prop is almost always, <laughs> if, the, if the team is any good, the prop's going to be a lot bigger and a lot heavier and, than, you know, than the scrum half, right? And rugby is designed and it is designed around safety and if they can, if you can design rugby around safety to allow a prop to safely tackle a fullback, then you, then this is not a real issue for this sport. Um, it's just drips of transphobia. It drips of misogyny. It is a complete rejection of what we know to be true, which is that trans women are women. And it, it, it's just gross all around. So yeah, I have some thoughts. <laughs> Uh, what about you? What are well, your yeah. feelings on all this nonsense? <laughs> when I was reading through some of the articles and actually going through the report that people were saying, or that the, uh, when I was going through the report that World Rugby was about to produce, because these are leaked documents that The Guardian, I think, got a hold of. Um, and basically, you know, trying to use this one scientific study that they've used to explain the rule changes. But yeah, it hasn't been peer reviewed. It hasn't gone over anything else. Uh, the IOC hasn't made any changes or any other sports governing body has done any of these changes. So this would be the first major um, change. Uh, but yeah, definitely when you, you know, when you're playing rugby, it's all about safety and it's all about ways to deal with your opponent. So yeah, there are plenty of women that I'll probably go against and will tackle and pummel me, like pummel me and destroy me. Uh, yeah. I mean, I have tackled women who are, that I outweigh by 60 pounds and I've been tackled by women that outweigh me by 60 pounds, right? Like, 
And this whole study, quote unquote, that they're basing this on, it talks about, those are the sort of things that it's talking about. Like if you've gone through male puberty, it talks about like inherent advantages that you have that relate to size, muscle mass and things like that. And like, the reality is the nature of rugby is that there's all different types of bodies on the field at any given time. And it's a full contact sport. And so rugby in particular really shouldn't be, shouldn't be scrutinized in this way anyway right even if the science was valid it's like saying like well are we going to start um putting rules into place that say that a player who is a certain percentage bigger or stronger than another player can't tackle that player yeah because that's basically what they're getting at and the reality is that like i've played rugby for 20 years and (laughs) my body has changed dramatically over that period of time and the and my relationship to the size and strength and speed of the other players that I've played against has dramatically changed over time. I mean, I'll tell you right now, like there's nothing worse than being 36 and getting tackled by a 21 year old player from the air force Academy. I promise you, and <laughs> you know, it's smaller than you, but they're, they're just faster and more athletic. And so it, this is, uh, this is just such complete bullshit. I cannot, I cannot use enough words to say how wrong all of this is on so many levels. And I, there's a lot of petitions going around. There's a lot of statements being made. I truly hope that this, um, that this doesn't get enacted and that we can stop this in its tracks because this would be a really shameful step uh, for the sport of rugby and would be a really disappointing development to see if it goes through. I would like to point out too, it's, it's kind of what we talked about before with almost every single issue uh, that we've seen in transgender individuals in sports is it's mostly uh, people who transition from male to female. Right. Because right now there's nothing about female to male athletes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the science that this is based on is such garbage that it's difficult to really like try to analyze the issue. But like, if it were true that a transgender woman has such a different body that they inherently are unsafe to play with other women, then shouldn't it be also unsafe for transgender men to play against, you know, but in the, in the reverse, like, shouldn't it be unsafe for the transgender man? But it's all, it's all bullshit, right? Like really what it comes down to is people are, it's transphobia plus misogyny and trans women are just not viewed as fully human. That's, that, that's just what it comes down to. And it, it's really sickening to see that take root in the context of rugby, but it's, it's something that we all need to acknowledge just exists everywhere in society today. Transgender women are not treated, are treated subhuman. That's the tough thing about it coming from the rugby world because rugby is such an inclusive sport. You know, all body types, all sizes, you know, everything. And, uh, but I guess one of the, the positive things is the amount of support I've been seeing online from all the member clubs of the International Gay Rugby Associations, a lot of rugby fans. Uh, there was a prime minister. Uh, no, there was a member of parliament from New Zealand who was a former rugby player who said, "You know, let anyone play rugby. It doesn't matter if you're, yeah. you know, male, female, cis man, cis woman. Who cares? Let them." Yeah. Play well, rugby. what I want to see is man, uh, rugby clubs that are not associated with international gay rugby um speaking up on this issue what i want to see i want to see all rugby clubs speaking up on this issue and keeping the sport from making this mistake not just the gay teams because the reality is (laughs) if world rugby is out there thinking about passing this rule then i don't think they're going to be persuaded by the voices of queer rugby players because they clearly don't respect queer rugby players the same way that they do others so this it's this is like one of those things that it's going to be very important for straight men who play rugby to say hey 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 keep your keep your bigotry out of my sport even though it doesn't impact them directly um their voices are probably going to be more impactful so this is a time where we really need allies and solidarity 
Definitely. Well, that was depressing, Gabe. Sorry. You start out with Kylie Minogue and then you have to bring me down with a bunch of transphobe, transphobic people trying to take over rugby. (laughs) (sighs) Um, No, in all seriousness, this was a great conversation. Um, I really hope that for anybody who is listening, is interested, there are petitions everywhere and we will link to um, one in the show notes so go to the blog, read the show notes, and you can sign a petition um, about this, this proposed rule by World Rugby and then share it on your social medias so that we can uh, get it signed by everybody. And hopefully we can avoid um, World Rugby making this horrible mistake. Okay, <laughs> that's this week's Under the Bleachers Roundup of all things queer, all things sports, and things at the intersection of sports and queer. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to share with you our interview with Patrick Brady of the Centaur Motorcycle Club. And we're back with Under the Bleachers. Today we have Patrick Grady with the Centaur Motorcycle Club. Hi, Patrick. How are you doing? Good. Thank you all for including us into the podcast. And thanks for agreeing to being uh, interviewed today. Uh, we have a few questions. So can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, Centaur Motorcycle Club? The Centaur Motorcycle Club was founded in 1970 in, in Virginia. So we are registered in the Commonwealth of Virginia. But shortly after that, a lot of people had moved up to D.C. So the club, I just came up the, the, the highway and established itself in Washington, D.C., and then dropped the Virginia out of Centaur Motorcycle Club of Virginia, which is now Centaur Motorcycle Club. We have 30 members, and we meet monthly except for the month of July. We're really a social club that happens to dabble in leather and Levi. We do have a few people with motorcycles. Used to, until 1986, you had to have a motorcycle to belong to the club. And then that was changed as the club grew with new members who didn't necessarily have a motorcycle, but still liked to ride on the back of one or enjoyed the the leather motorcycle fetish that uh, most of the leather clubs all adhere to that's the common bond with it within the leather community is the motorcycle and how that started after world war ii as you could couldn't necessarily have a gay club but you could become a motorcycle club so uh a lot of the gay organization gay leather clubs started out as motor motorcycle clubs oh that's interesting i didn't know that um that history. And the oldest club in Washington is the Spartans, the oldest leather club. And you, to be a member of the Spartans in Washington, D.C., you have to own a motorcycle. Gotcha. Do the Centaur, um, does the Centaur Club get together and ride motorcycles still today? Uh, a few of the members, we have three at my last count, and uh, they do join. The Spartans always have used to have weekend rides, so they would meet an appointed place and ride, uh, say, up into West Virginia or wherever. And we have members that live in West Virginia, so they could do a barbecue and become social. And then there'd be members that follow along in their cars just in case anybody needed assistance while on a motorcycle. I'll say for a few of our listeners, can you uh, tell us a little bit more about the leather community or what would you consider the leather community leather the leather community was based on obviously with people who enjoy wearing leather uh the fetish of leather whether it's uh, the the feel of it on your skin the smell of it uh whether you're just in a jock a leather jock in and a harness to a full leather uniform or formal leather and then you're with your brothers and sisters that enjoy leather, and that's how you bond. You have that common part of your life, which is the leather. But the community's grown so much into more fetish 
with you've got puppies, you've got rubber, you've got uh, dominant, you have submissives, you have the uniforms. It's just a huge uh, group of individuals now that have a fetish, a love of a fetish, whether it's leather, whether it's cowboy with the leather, with the boots, uh, with rubber. It's just huge all over the world. Can you tell me, as somebody who um, is not super familiar with the leather community, can you give me an idea of what proper attire is or what formal leather is? Well, in leather bars, you had to own you. Some bars in the old, in the seventies and eighties, you had to be in leather to gain access into the bar or into a back part of the bar where fun and games would occur. But that would be meaning that you had to have a piece of leather, whether it's uh, leather pants, a vest, formal leather, which is pants, a shirt, a tie, and for those people that like master caps or hats, they would be in, in that type of a of a look. Boots are a big part of the community because the boots can be up to your waist. They can be tied. They can be motorcycle boots. Just all sorts of boots have always been a big part of the community. But you had to be, had to have that look to gain access into the into a leather bar or into a back room or back area of a bar. In today's world, that really doesn't work because the community is so much evolved into other fetish aspects of the leather world. It's also one of the friendliest groups uh, to belong with the community. They're very, very friendly. They're very ac- accepting to people. Awesome. I was going to ask, do you have any, uh, I guess, what would be your tips or recommendations for someone who's interested in getting more involved in the leather community? They can go online to different, to either International or Leather web- website or just Google Leather, Leather Clubs. Uh, sometimes they, you can be hesitant in accepting it, but once you get involved, it can really open up and help you explore into your fetish, into a uh, meeting people that are doing something differently, whether it's uh, sexually or non-sexually, but just enjoying a, a group of people that love to have a good time and accept people for what they are and what they do. Um, Patrick, you right. mentioned that you guys uh, have a big focus on social events. So I want to ask you a little bit about the Mid-Atlantic Leather Weekend that you uh, host every year. Can you tell us how that event got started? It, uh, the original thought to that was there's leather cocktails. Leather cocktails was a tradition that was held in New York by a different group of gentlemen at the Waldorf Astoria. And they invited people to, when if they were in New York at a certain time, to come to have a cocktail party. And you wore your finest leather. Uh, it moved out of New York, and we got it in 1985. Was the first leather weekend, and we added leather. We added the contest, Mr. Mid Atlantic Leather Contest, to the leather weekend. The Tony Bacharach and Al Santor and and other gentlemen of the club at that time got it all together, and we had uh, our first leather cocktails and leather Mid-Atlantic Leather Weekend. It was at the Eagle, was one of the host bars, and other bars in the city hosted the event, and it was by invitation for the leather cocktails, and it just grew into a, a large event that we held from for a long time at the Washington Plaza, that's when I got involved, and then we moved to the Hyatt Regency. And in the weekend is with exhibitors, with the leather cocktails, and with the contest. And then throughout the years, we've raised money uh, 
as we're the stewards of everyone who pays to come to MAL, we then donate that money to different charities. Uh, the centaurs are known for putting on a big show, uh, like a show club with lights and music and beautiful decor. And we have some very talented members who all love to do that. So leather cocktails, is that just what it sounds like? It's a cocktail party, but for people a, who uh, participate in the leather community? And it's a, yes, it is a cocktail party. And you have mingling. We do a couple of announcements. Uh, we do a, a history of the event, which talks about when it was held in New York. And the end of the cocktail party is signified by dropping of a cock ring, which is a metal <laughs> ring that goes around one's anatomy. And the original story is that someone was wearing it in New York and it slipped out and it rolled into the room and fell and you could hear this noise. <laughs> and that signifies the end of the cocktail party. And then okay. everybody goes, goes along. Well, that's memorable well, to we say have the least. Yeah. We always have a theme. And so it's a, uh, the, the florals, the lights, the music, all are, and the food are all grouped into a theme for leather cocktails. And that's a, the signature event of the weekend. And then, of course, the other signature event is the contest, Mr. Mid-Atlantic Leather, which we've had anywhere from 30, 40 members. Uh, 30 or 40 people enter to uh, five or 10 in today's world. Since we're on the topic of the contest, can you just, yeah. is it a, like a traditional beauty contest, um, but for your best leather, just <laughs> yeah. explain to me it's, what the contest entails. Right. The contest, we have a uh, other local uh, and mid-Atlantic areas that have contests, leather, whether bar contests or state contests, and they send their contestants. It's an interview process. It's what you would wear at a bar, bar attire, formal attire, and physique. And there's seven judges that judge you live with the bar, bar wear, physique, and formal leather. The interview is done in the morning and then on Sunday is the usual contest and the winner is then announced. But yes, it's similar to a beauty contest, yes. Except there's no entertainment, so to speak. No talent. There's for questions them, huh? and no talent. But some <laughs> of them are very talented. Can you give us a couple of examples of the type of questions that get asked at the pageant? Or I'm sorry, the contest? <laughs> Just they, they'll ask, uh, what is your favorite fetish? What, what, what is your first piece of leather that you were either bought or given? What do you see yourself in the community? How would you represent the club? Because the, the winner does represent the Centaur Club for a year. We pay their way to compete at International Mr. Leather, which is in May in Chicago. And then we ask that the, the winner comes back for Pride, for Scarlet's Bake Sale, and goes to the local contest as well, and just promotes the good and the well-being of the community and of the club. Uh, some members, uh, some of the questions might, you know, talk about if they travel, what's their their favorite vacation spot. So it's all over the boat. It's not political because the club, the Centaurs, we're not a political club. We're a social club. Uh, but one of the things that I really found uh, very interesting and I thought was really awesome about uh, MAL Weekend is the uh, charity recipients that come out of the event. So can you talk a little bit about that, about uh, the different organizations that the, uh, the sure. Centaurs donate to? Sure. Uh, as club, as a club, we discuss in October with suggestions of who we'd like to give a, money to after the weekend. We always let the current Mid-Atlantic Leather 
whoever wins the title, we always allow him to make a suggestion to where he's coming from. So last year was Pittsburgh. So one of the Pittsburgh charities did receive, well, for the past three years, they've received uh, money from us. But the club votes in December on who we'd like to give a charity to. There may be five names or seven names. We try to give pick a charity that's not necessarily nationally known or has have national money like the Red Cross because it gets lost. Where does that money actually go? And I'm not belittling what the Red Cross does, but, you know, somebody like uh, Brother Help Thyself or Team DC or Rainbow Railroad, they know that money, whether it's $500 or $10,000, they know where they have plans for where that money is going to go. It's not going to go into a director or a uh, official's pocket, so to speak. It's actually going to go to, to do good for someone. Yeah, I see that you all are celebrating 50 years this year. Do you have any secrets, I guess, to uh, longevity in D.C., especially with some of the changing climate? It's just with a group of men and women. We we had Mindy was our female member. She's now an alumni. So we have uh, associate members. We have active members and alumni and fraternal members. But we all try to get along with each other. Yes, there's discussions and not everyone agrees on certain things, but we all can put that aside and realize that the club will always evolve and change. And the club, we all have to do that as well. We have some new members, younger members coming in, and they of course have a whole different look on things such as what we're doing here tonight or, I mean, or other internet things. I mean, I belong back in the days of Rome, so I'm not the most technological person alive. But the club is, has survived through understanding changes and just trying to do our best. Whether or not we make the entire community happy, you can't make everybody happy. So we just try to do our best. Patrick, what are some common misconceptions that you think people have about the leather community? Okay that we're scary, that all we want to do is tie people up and have sex and and wear very little in parade in parades or you know, we're not we're not a body shaming group. There's leather fits everybody and anybody and the community is so welcoming. I, I think it's just Sometimes within our community, the gay community, we start to eat our own if we can't get everyone to agree that this is how we should do something. And we feed into what the population is trying to do instead of embracing each other, our differences, and just strive. Granted, if, you're, if you don't like something, then you don't like, like avocado, don't eat avocado, but don't criticize somebody for enjoying avocado. It just, we all have to work better together. And that's where I think some people are, resent the community, leather community, I guess. I, I don't know. They don't understand it. They see the, how different and how much of an extreme we can be. But to us, it's not an extreme. We're just having fun. I mean, flogging somebody, which is whipping somebody, it's not a bad thing when it's consensual and everybody has a safe word and it's not done out of anger. It's done for pleasure. So some of the things the community, the leather community is into may not be mainstream, but, and, and that's what the community is still doing, evolving with the puppies, with the rubber, with uh, a lot of women getting involved now. A lot of women, which is great. That's which great that great. the community is kind of evolving and getting together and getting bigger, actually. Just kind of right. Awesome. Um, 
this has been very educational, Patrick. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Um, before I let you go, do you want to um, tell anybody who's listening where they could find more information about the club if they're interested in coming out and joining you guys? Sure. It's www.centaurmc.org or leatherweekend.com are the two websites that we're using. Now, if I wanted to come out and just observe some part of Mid-Atlantic Leather Weekend, would I be required to be in leather? No, no. Anyone can come to the Hyatt. Everyone is welcome. Everybody is welcome. The Hyatt turns into the largest gay bar on the East Coast for the entire weekend. Um, all right. Well, yeah. <laughs> I really, I we really sincerely appreciate you taking time out of your night to talk to us. Um, and of course, we support, we uh, appreciate the Centaur continued support of the Team DC College Scholarship Fund. So, thanks so much, and hopefully, we'll uh, get to talk to you again soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is proudly produced by and a product of Team DC. For more information about Team DC, please visit www.teamdc.org. We want to give credit to Ralph Elston, a Team DC board member, for the design of our logo. Also, our intro and outro music is provided by DC's Different Drummers Marching Band and was composed by Travis Gettinger. You can always find Under the Bleachers at underthebleachers.podbean.com and our podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast and share us with a friend so that we can all keep meeting Under the Bleachers. Under the Bleachers is hosted by Team DC Vice President Laura Freyer and Team DC Board Member for Fundraising Gabriel Hernandez. All views and opinions expressed are solely those of the hosts and the participants on Under the Bleachers and do not express the views of Team DC.